Gospel of John. Make your way there. And um, what I want to do here this morning as we pick up this or start this series is to just kind of give a bit of an introduction and a, a bit of a background to the book here. And, and so we want to look at the, the who, the what, the when, and the why of the Gospel of John. The who, what, when, and why. So first of all, who wrote the book of John? It's pretty clear, right? The Gospel of John. But we have a few different Johns in the Bible. And so there's some people that might get confused over, is this John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist is going to be spoken about, mentioned even in the first chapter here. So is it John the Baptist? No, this is John the Apostle. John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. And John, interestingly, became known as the disciple of, anybody know? The disciple of love or the apostle of love. Isn't that great? As he just spent time with Jesus. But that's not the way that John always was, you see. Because John and his brother James, they had an interesting nickname. We're not sure where they got this nickname, but the nickname was Sons of Thunder. That was a reference I think Jesus loved to call them. And it could be that when Jesus was traveling through, he went through a town in Samaria where it says that the people did not accept Jesus. It's there in Luke chapter 9 for us. And the town did not accept or receive Jesus. So James and John are sitting there saying, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven upon them? Shall we just burn this town down because they're not accepting you? And she's like, no, man, that's not why I came, guys. So it could be because of that that they became known as the Sons of Thunder. They were like the first WWE tag team champions right there, okay? That's James and John right here. So what I love about this is here they are. They're brash and they're bold, but they became compassionate and caring as they spent time with Jesus to where John becomes known as the Apostle of Love. And I like that because... I think for a lot of us, we can sometimes feel like, well, this is just the way I am. Take it or leave it. Accept who I am because this is how I deal with things. This is how I act or react. And this is just who I am. But it's not who you need to be. Because as we spend time with Jesus, I believe that we should be coming more like Jesus and looking like Jesus and resembling Jesus. And that's exactly what happened with John. Because he began to see and know the love of Jesus personally. And it affected and impacted his own life. So much so that John even refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. He doesn't refer to himself as John in the book when he's referring to him. He says, the apostle that Jesus loved. And there's John just reclining on the shoulder of Jesus there at the the table with the, the 12. And so John just began to know this intimacy that he could enjoy with Jesus to the point where it affected and impacted his life and becomes known as the apostle of love. So gang, there's hope for all of us, no matter where you're at today, no matter if you think, man, I am just, you know, this way and there's nothing I can do about it. Maybe not, but there's something Jesus can do about it if you allow him. Let him begin to mold you and shape you. Even as we go through this series in the book of John, let's allow him to mold us and shape us to where we recognize, hey, I am so-and-so whom Jesus loved. Let him transform your heart and life. And let us grow in that love of Jesus as we go through this book. So that's the who. It's John. John also is the man that wrote the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And he also wrote the book of Revelation. All right? Uh, Now the what. What is this book all about? I'm getting behind on my slides here. Here we go. What? 
this is known as the gospel, right? It's basically a gospel account, which is retelling the good news of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus and, and sharing the life and the story of Jesus, the good news. That's what the word gospel means, is, is good news. Now, you might be wondering, why do we need four gospels? We got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why does John need to add his bit about, you know, Jesus and this gospel? Well, understand that each one of these gospels is written with a bit of a different perspective. It's retelling the same story, more so it's telling us about Jesus, but sometimes it's, it's, it's writing to a, the gospel's writing to a different audience and writing for a different purpose and, and portraying Jesus in a bit of a, a different light or from a different angle. It's like if you were to, you know, experience an accident or you needed some witnesses, you could have four different witnesses all you know, witnessing that same accident, but, but telling you four very different kind of accounts of that accident. They're not different. They're just adding more parts to the accident based on where they were at, where they were viewing it from their own perspective and, and seeing things from a bit of a different way. And so it begins to fill things in a little bit more. You could ask four different people their opinion about me and you will have perhaps very differing opinions you could ask my wife tell us about brent and she would probably say well he's just a very loving caring generous husband whom i cannot stand to be apart from for more than a day that's probably the response yeah but you could ask my kids tell us about your dad and they'd all be like man he's just like the biggest dork we know right you get very different opinions you could ask you know pastor randy or rob what's it like working with brent tell us about that and they would probably well you know we don't need to go there we'll we'll leave it that you get the idea but you get different reports but they're all sharing from their own views and perspective on the same account or person. And so we have four Gospels to bring us a fuller, more complete picture and account of the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, each writer of the Gospels portrayed Jesus in a different light. Look at this here in Matthew. Matthew wrote primarily to the Jews. And so he's writing to proclaim Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now Mark. He's writing to the Romans. And so Romans were, they were a busy bunch. They were fast paced. They were, you know, they loved this idea of, uh, of servanthood. And so Mark's gospel, his is a very fast paced gospel. It's only 16 chapters. And he's just moving through this stuff quickly as would have been appealing to Romans. And he's writing to reveal Jesus as the suffering servant. Some of the Romans would have been like, hmm, I like that idea. Now, Luke, however, he writes primarily to the Greeks. And because the Greeks were fascinated with Plato's ideal man, Luke writes primarily to show Jesus as the son of man. John now, he comes on the scene and he writes this gospel to really all people, everybody. And he brings it all together to proclaim that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing in him, you might have life. That's John's perspective and goal in writing this gospel we'll talk about that a little bit more now john's gospel is quite unique it's been called the fourth gospel and not just because it's the number four in the order of the gospels but because it is a very unique and different gospel than the other ones because it has something different now matthew mark and luke they're known as the synoptic gospels okay the Synoptic Gospels, which comes from a, a couple Greek words, uh, sin and optikos, which basically put them together. It means to see together. That's what that word synoptic means, to see together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
all right with a kind of similar sort of material. They're, you know, perhaps borrowing from one another, retelling some of these same accounts and stories, but kind of from their own lens. And so they're seeing things kind of together. There's a lot in common with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John comes onto the scene now, and John's gospel is very unique and different. His gospel contains about 90% uh, or about 90% of John's gospel is unique to his gospel and you won't find that stuff in the other gospels. So it's the fourth gospel, not just because it's in the order of that, but because it is very different than the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. About 90% of the information we'll find in John is unique to his gospel. Now, each gospel sheds light on who the person of Jesus Christ is. They're not contradictory but they're complementary together understand that okay this isn't like you know oh well matthew had it right luke had it wrong no they're they're not contradictory they're they're complementary they all write with a common purpose to share the message and the mission of jesus so that's really the what of of this gospel you know and, and what the gospel is but why or sorry when most likely this gospel is written between 85 to, to 95 AD. So John's gospel becomes the last of the gospels that's written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all were written before John's account. Now John, interestingly, you know, he uh, had, uh, history tells us that he had moved on to Ephesus where he was perhaps pastoring the church there. Paul had planted the church in Ephesus and John now is continuing on there where he wrote the gospel of John later on in his life. Uh, he wrote the epistles from Ephesus. And then we know that John, you know, underwent some persecution by the, by the Romans and they tried to execute John. They tried to execute John by placing him in a vat of boiling oil. They were going to cook him to death, literally. But John, miraculously, as history tells us, survived. And so they banished him to this Isle of Patmos, which was like a deserted, barren island. And it's there on the island of Patmos that John received the revelation of Jesus Christ and where he wrote the book of Revelation. So this is kind of the history of John. So John's gospel written much later than the other gospels and, and towards you know the, the end of his life there while in Ephesus. Now, why did John write this? John's purpose in writing the gospel was to show that Jesus is divine, that he's deity, that he is God. He's the son of God and life comes to those who believe that he is the Christ. John gives us his purpose ultimately and summary at the end of the book. It's the, the key verse of the book of John. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Here's what it says. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John is writing this. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. That's what's going to be driving John all throughout the writing of this book here. He's wanting to really make that clear for his audience. He's not merely interested in just recording historical facts. He's more interested in stating how Jesus has changed the course of history. More so, how Jesus can impact and change your lives personally and individually. 
The first three Gospels focus more on what Jesus you know, did and taught, whereas John comes along and he teaches more or focuses more on who Jesus is. The other Gospels, more on what Jesus did and taught. John says, let me show you who Jesus is. Is So John wrote with that unique purpose and it affected what he included in the gospel and also what he omitted in the gospel. Because in the gospel of John, for instance, we don't read about Jesus's genealogy or his birth in Bethlehem or his baptism and temptation. There's no parables at all in the gospel of John. He doesn't write of the transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, or even his ascension to heaven after his resurrection. What John was focused on was Jesus' ministry primarily in and around Jerusalem. Jesus' private conversations with individuals. We get a, a kind of personal glimpse into how Jesus dealt with people one-on-one. But then also we, we get a real interesting glimpse as to Jesus' you know, private conversation, even with his disciples there. Chapters 13 and 17, where Jesus is just pouring in to them and discipling and teaching them. So these are some things that are very unique to John's gospel. And again, that motivation and purpose of what John included in this book was to move us on to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, in our day and age, you know, People feel that you just need to believe something. People love to say they have faith. But the question is, what is that faith in? In fact, the common term that I think you'd hear people say a lot today is that uh, I'm spiritual. You can talk about God, but they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I'm a very spiritual person. And what they mean by that is really that, you know, they just like to have a a belief or a faith in something. I was talking to a, uh, a lady while I was on our trip here and just sharing with them about about the Lord, and, and she was quick to bring up that very fact. She said, oh, I'm, I'm very spiritual. I'm, I, I consider myself a spiritual person. I said, so, great, what, what do you believe? How does a person go to heaven? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't believe there's just one way. You know, I think if a person believes in, in this over here, or they believe in that, well, it all gets you to God. You just need to believe. And so basically what they're saying is that we just need to have a belief in a belief. It's not a belief in a person as John is trying to communicate to us. You see, what John says, he comes on, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's bringing us to this fact that it's not just a belief in a belief, because there's nothing concrete or sure if it's just multiple ways to the Lord. John is saying, I want you to believe in the one way that is going to provide life, and that is through Jesus, and believing that Jesus is the Christ. This word believe is, again, going to really drive John in his gospel. Because that word, the, the root, basically, of that word in the Greek, that's going to be used some 100 times in the gospel of John. Believe, believing, believed. This is going to be used repeatedly because this is what John is desiring for his audience to know, is that you would believe, not just belief in a belief, but that you believe in the one that's able to save. Because he says, notice that, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Right? That's not John using a full name for Jesus, as some people like to think, Jesus Christ, first, last name, right? No, it's Jesus' name. Christ is his title because what Christ means is Messiah. 
John is pointing out that Jesus is the one that God has promised. All through history, all through the Old Testament, God has promised that there's going to come one, a Messiah, that is going to be the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Savior for the world. And people were ready, expecting that. But John is saying, you need to believe that Jesus is that one. That he's the one that fulfills all the promises that God has given us. He's the one that's all wrapped up in. He's the one you need to put your faith in. Not just faith in faith, not just a belief in a belief, but a belief in the one true one that is able to save and deliver you and bring life to you. It's by believing that Jesus is the Christ that you'll find life in his name. So John gives us material that will help shape now that, that trust. That word belief is, is really not just some, you know, intellectual understanding. It's this word of faith, a, a, a trust, I mean, right? You can believe that this is a chair, but when you sit down, you're exercising faith because you're trusting now that chair to hold you up, right? You can say all you want. Oh, I believe that that's a chair, sure. Well, great, sit down on it. Well, yeah, no. that's where a lot of people are. Oh, I believe that there's something out there. Well, put your faith in it. Well, I don't, I don't know. That's really... This is what John is getting at. It's like believing that you might have faith, trust. You put your dependency upon this person, Jesus, who is the Christ, the one that fulfills all the promises of God. And that's what's going to drive John's gospel here. And so John now, again, like he's, he's, he's wanting to put information into this gospel that's going to help us grow in this trust and faith. And so what John does is he uses these seven signs of Jesus and also seven I am statements of Christ. Here's the seven signs in the gospel of John. Changing water into wine in Cana. Healing an official son in Capernaum. Ha- uh, healing an invalid at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Feeding the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee. Walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. Healing a blind man in Jerusalem and then raising dead Lazarus in Bethany. Man, that is... Boom, that's a mic dropper right there. Lazarus, come forth, right? Up from the grave comes Lazarus. You question now if Jesus really is God. That's gonna be the nail in the coffin, which doesn't doesn't fit for Lazarus because the nail comes out, but you get the idea, right? So John now is saying, and and a lot of those uh, signs, these miracles... Again, some of them are in the other Gospels, but a lot of these are unique to John's Gospel. And then John brings up these I am statements of Jesus, seven of them. Again, seven, the number of, of, of completion. So John's saying, listen, let me give you this complete picture of Jesus through the signs he does, through the I am statements. And, and the Jews knew when Jesus used that term, I am, what, they were, what he was meaning. He used it one time, and the Jews picked up stones ready to stone him. Because they considered blasphemy. Why? Because how did God reveal himself to Moses when he was at the burning bush and Moses says, God, whom should I say sent me? What does God say? I am who I am. I am has sent you. Yahweh, the all-existing one. And so Jesus comes along and he uses that term, I am the name of God. And he's in seven different ways here. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. And so John fits these in, again, to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's God. And he's worthy of our faith. 
being on him and in him. These statements are given to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's divine, that he alone holds the power to save and give life to those who put their trust in him. Here's a few more contrasts of how John's gospel differs from the synoptic gospels. We're not going to go through all those, so just take a quick you know, brain snapshot. Get that into your memory there, because I'm not going to keep that up there. But um, that's kind of just some more things to... To see there. Now here's the outline. Here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through the Gospel of John. Here's how we're going to break this down in our series here together. First of all, we're going to see chapters 1 to 4, Jesus' personal ministry. Chapters 5 to 12, we'll see his public ministry. Chapters 13 to 17, we'll see Jesus' private ministry where he spends time again with his disciples now, really kind of, you know, mentoring them in a sense, right? And then chapters 18 to 21, Jesus' passion ministry where we see him being led to the cross, his suffering and and then, of course, his resurrection. So, listen, we're going to have some fun exploring the gospel of John over the next number of weeks, months, maybe years. Who knows? We don't know. But we're going to be in the gospel of John here. And, and what I love about this is it's a very evangelistic book. It, it's a book meant to bring us to a greater understanding of who God is because we come face to face with the one who reveals God, Jesus Christ. So it's meant to grow our faith. And I encourage you, be people who are inviting others to come with you to church and to meet with God as we meet with Jesus in the book of John. I gave a challenge a few weeks ago. Let me remind you. And this is an easy challenge. This isn't hard. But we talked about in our testimony Sunday how one person you know, uh, was mentioning how they came to churches because somebody invited them. And the rest was history. And so we, played, we, we issued the challenge. We want 2019 to be the year that every person brings just one person with them to church. Invite somebody with you to church, besides your mom, okay? Invite, we bring your mom too, but let's not just leave it at that. But bring somebody with you. At least one Sunday in 2019. It can't be any easier than that. I hope you'll do it multiple Sundays. But this is this campaign of plus one at Riverside this year. You'll hear that mentioned. The year of plus one. This is the year we want you to invite somebody with you to bring somebody to church because we're going to be in the Gospel of John and I'm going to make my aim to share the Gospel every Sunday to let people know how they can find life today and it's found in Jesus Christ through believing in Him. So let's be praying about that. Let's pray. Think about somebody. You know, have some in your mind and be praying for them. Be praying for that invite, that they'll have an open heart to receive that. And be praying for this book to do its work in our own hearts personally as we go through this. Because I love what somebody once said about this book. Is, is, like I said, it's an evangelistic book. It's a book that many of us have gone through. But here's what one, one person said. This book is like a pool that's safe for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And so... Many of you are elephants here today. You've been through this book. You've been through, ah, Gospel of John, I know this inside and out. But man, it is a deep book. It's one that a new believer can come and just be transformed through, or an unbeliever. But it's one that the seasoned Christian is going to find something that's going to be encouraging and helpful and strengthening in their walk with the Lord for us. So let's be praying for that. Well, you guys ready to do some swimming? Okay, chapter 1. Verse 1, here's how it begins. In the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So, the beginning is very unique, again, in John's Gospel. Unlike the other Gospels, John takes us back to the very beginning. Not to Bethlehem, where Jesus came as a man. In fact, he takes us to the beginning of the beginning. You see, God lives outside of time. There was never a starting point for God. Genesis 1-1 was not the starting point for God. It, that was the starting point for time. But God lives outside of time. He's pre-existent. He lives in what we call eternity past. Or this is referring to what we call eternity past. The timeless eternity. And it does recall what we read in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So creation is when time began, but understand, this isn't when God began. He had no beginning. He's pre-existent, always was. But now we read here in John's account that God was not alone. Here at this point, John introduces us to the word. Now we're going to find out, let me just skip ahead down to verse 14. In fact, look at that with me. We're going to find out who the word is. And the word was, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know that right there in verse 14, the word is Jesus, who became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. So then we might ask, why doesn't John just say Jesus in the beginning and remove all confusion over what the word is? Who's this word he's talking about here? Well, again, John is writing to show that. Jesus is God, and that by believing in him, you may have life. So he uses this term, word. Now, it's funny because I think it was probably back in the 90s. We had this term that we would use to describe something as being true, right, solid. If somebody said something that was bang on you, just say, word, right? Somebody says, hey, you got to get yourself to Riverside because, man, there's some fantastic preaching going on there. You would just say, if you knew that was what you just, word, Word, that's true. That's what you would say, word. And so here's John now saying, let me reveal to you who the word is, the one that brings complete truth, solid, who is right. You see, it spoke of truth. And Jesus came to not just reveal truth, but he came as truth. To reveal to us what was solid and right. Jesus came to reveal to us who the Father is and what the Father's like. So that Jesus could say even, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Word. So John evidently chose this title because it communicates the fact that the Word was not only God, but it's the expression of God. It reveals the truth of God. A spoken or written word expresses what is in the mind of its speaker or writer. Likewise, Jesus, the word, was not only God, but he was the expression of God to humankind. I could go into a room of strangers and not say a word. Now, they would see me, but they wouldn't really know me. It's through my word that people begin to know who I am, what I'm about, what I like, Whether they want to like me back or not, the word determines that. And so Jesus, the word, comes now to reveal who God is, to allow us to get to know God, to know the word of God 
and to know the God of this word. And so Jesus comes as that. The word had this metaphorical meaning in Jewish and Greek literature when John wrote this gospel. John then adopted this word and used it in in personification to express Jesus as the ultimate divine self-revelation of God. And in view of Old Testament usage, it carries you know, the idea of even creation and revelation and deliverance. So the word now in Greek is logos. You've heard that word, I'm sure, before, logos. And that had significance for both the Jews and the Greek readers of this gospel. To the Jews, the logos was the self-assertion of God's personality. Oftentimes, they used the term word of God even in place of God. For example, ancient Hebrew editions of the Old Testament changed Exodus 19.17, which says Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. To say this, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. In the mind of the ancient Jew, the phrase the word of God could be used to refer to God himself. And to the Greeks now, the Logos was the power that kept all things intact in the universe. Keeping it orderly instead of just chaotic. Right? It was the reason of God, they would determine, which controlled all things. So John now, you see, he sets out to show the Jews and the Greeks who this word, that they have an idea of, who this word truly is. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the expression of God. So much so that Jesus, when he comes again, we see him clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. That's his identity, the word of God. See, a word is made up of letters. And Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he's everything in between, the first and the last. He spells out and makes clear to us who God is. And notice, it says the word was with God. In the beginning, before creation, there was already relationship and distinction. Because this word was with God. There was separation but there was unity together you see this begins to reveal to us and give us a glimpse of the trinity jesus is fully god yet he is distinct from god later on john will introduce us to the holy spirit the third member of the trinity now listen don't get confused here because we're not talking about three different gods we have one God who is revealed in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all coexisting and they make up together the Godhead, the Trinity. And many people have tried to explain it through nature, what the Trinity is like. Well, it's like water, right? Water, you can have a solid, a gas, or a liquid form. It's all water, but three different forms. And at some you know, at right temperatures, you can have all three. Or some will say, well, the Trinity is kind of like the egg, right? You got the the shell, you got the egg, and then you got the yolk. All all the egg, but made of three different parts. But all those comparisons always come up short. Because God is not an egg. God's not water. God is so much greater and beyond anything like that that we see. And, And so these comparisons always fall up short. Understand that as much as we try to understand and fathom the trinity it is something that i don't think we'll ever fully in our finite minds get a handle on in fact paul would come along and say in first timothy three sixteen, that without controversy great is the mystery of godliness these are things we're just not going to i think fully grasp regarding the godhead and and you know what we should be okay with that we should be okay with that listen 
I, I, I can't for the life of me, I mean, figure out my wife for the best part. You husbands know what it's like. Your wife can be a real mystery. You're all afraid to nod your head right now, but I know what you're thinking. Amen. Preach it. Word. Word, Brent. I mean, that is bang on right there. Our wives can be a mystery. Right when you think you've got them figure out, they reveal another layer that you're just like, what are you doing? You know, you're contradicting what you're talking about yesterday. I can't figure you out. But you know what? I love my wife. I, I'm grateful for my wife. But I, she's a mystery. How much more is God who's above and beyond all these things, a mystery to us. And guess what? We should be okay with that because if God was able to be figured out, if he was small enough for us to get inside our finite minds, then he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. So I'm thankful that there's things about God that it's a mystery. But that's what makes him that much greater and awesome and worthy to be worshipped and praised. See, we get into trouble when we try to explain away things that fit our rational thinking. When we try to say, I, I don't get this. I, 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 don't, I can't figure this out. So it must not be this. It, maybe it's, it's like this. And this is, you see, what Jehovah's Witnesses do in this verse. They don't like the doctrine of a trinity, so they make Jesus to be a God. They're like, no, we don't like this. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. no. So they say in their New World Translation, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They, they, they twist this around to fit what they think is, is able to be understood and make sense. Because how can you have one God, but be plural, shown in three persons? And again, it's not three gods, it's one God, but revealed in three persons. But they twist this around, and that's what leading cults do today. They want to undermine the deity of Jesus. They make him a created being. Mormons say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Muslims will say that, that he's just a prophet, like Muhammad was. But John makes some very large statements in this opening verse. In just one verse, he lays out three different aspects of the nature of the word. The first speaks of his preexistence. The second speaks of his distinction, and the third speaks of his deity. And there are those that, again, that's where faith comes in. I, I, I was out in, in Fort Langley yesterday, walking along, and I was walking on sidewalk, and I saw a couple of people out with some material, and I thought, oh, they got some people out here witnessing. And I came up, and I saw Watchtower. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. This is great. You provided these people for me. And so I just stopped and I started chatting with them about these things, about this verse. And I brought them other verses where, where God even speaks to Jesus and calls him God. And in, if you take people through Hebrews 1, you'll see that God himself is speaking to the Son, calling him God, calling him Lord, capital, Yahweh. You go through Revelation and you can see. And, and if you have people in your life that are Jehovah's Witnesses or you get people coming to your door all the time, I encourage you to come and talk to to Keith and Lori McGregor, who have a great ministry and great resources in, in, in witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses and the cults, and just talk to them, and they'll be happy to share with you some great tips and keys in how to communicate to these people. But as I'm talking with them, I'm, I'm showing these things, and they're like, well, no, that's not, the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. 
Like, how do you can't? I said, well, no, you're right. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the whole teaching and doctrine of the Trinity is all throughout the Bible. You go, and so I'm taking through these verses. Well, no, and they just kept coming back. And so one guy's trying to take me off to the side a little bit, get me out of the way, you know. And he's the guy that I know is like the really studied one. And they've always got another person with them that's kind of the disciple. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm gonna forget. I'm gonna key in on this other girl here who's you know not saying much i'm gonna i, I want to get to her because i want her to have some doubt as to what she's being told and to let her see what the bible actually says and so i'm communicating i'm like listen yeah the trinity's not in the bible the word trinity the word elephant is in the bible but again tell me there's no elephants now because the word's not in the bible so there's lots of things like that that you just go that doesn't but see what they're doing is they're trying to go this doesn't make sense to me this doesn't add up how can you have one God and yet it real in three persons? So I got to bring him down to my level. And that's all they got. But you take him through these verses and they got their way to argue around it. But you just keep showing them these verses that reveal Jesus to be God. And they'll eventually begin to think that through and question that. I'd be praying, praying for them, but they have it mixed up. And we also know even just through looking at this passage simply contextually, that the conclusion that they come to doesn't fit. Because notice what it says there in, in, in verse 3. Now, if he was a God, if Jesus was just a God, then he is a created being, as they confess, right? They profess that. He's a created being. But the word itself says in verse 3, all things were made through him. Did you see that? All things were made through him, and without him, Jesus, the word, nothing was made that was made. So if he's a created being and he made everything, how did he make himself? A created being could not have created himself. Yet that's what you have. If everything that was made was made through him, it doesn't add up even as you go through this. So John is revealing to us right from the get-go that Jesus, the word, is pre-existent. He was in the beginning. Before time even started up, and he was with God. There's equality in the Godhead. There's distinction. And the word was God. Not a God, but was God. And he sums it up. He was in the beginning with God. Well, we're going to wrap it up right there. And we're going to continue on here in verse 3 next Sunday. But here's the introduction to the word. And to who Jesus is. And this is the point that John is looking to drive through the whole gospel. That Jesus is God. And that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, you may have life in his name. That's what John wants you to experience today, life. And we know that Jesus has come to do that. And we know how this ends. And Jesus was led to a cross where he died, paying the penalty for our sin, the, sins, the, the, the penalty that we deserve, the judgment of God. But Jesus took our place on the cross. He died for us. That's why he came as a man. So that he could be that sacrifice in our place. That he could clothe himself in humanity. Experience the same things we experience. But then take the judgment of God on the cross for our sins. That we could be spared from that. Forgiven. And Jesus rose again. And that's what we celebrate here at communion. As we're going to do. I'm going to encourage you. I'm just going to ask you to stand right now. Worship team that's here. Come and join me. And this is what we do in communion, is we remember what Jesus did for us there on the cross, why he came. It's all summed up right here. He came that we might have life. 
And we partake of these elements, not because it's these things that save us, but we partake of them in remembrance because of the saving work that Jesus did, all by his grace. We didn't do anything to be saved. He did it all. And we proclaim that. We thank him. We remember him in this time of communion. So we're going to worship the Lord right now. We're going to just close our service with a couple songs. And as we sing and worship, I'm going to ask you just to come and make your way to the front. We've got communion here in the corners and right up on the front in the stage. And so just go ahead and partake of those. Bring them back to your seat. and Just take them on your own. But do it with a heart of, uh, of thankfulness and in remembrance of what Jesus has indeed done for us.